Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, investors and CEOs who are changing the face of the healthcare scene in the UK and beyond. Um, I am a CEO and founder of a health tech venture myself called PocDoc. PocDoc support the show, so thank you very much for that. PocDoc are supercharging the cardiometabolic screening pathway with our digital app to allow anybody anywhere to deliver a full cardiovascular screen in under eight minutes. Currently working with the NHS and a number of pharmacies. If you want to check us out, then you can just Google PocDoc or go to PocDoc.co. Um, but anyway, thank you very much for for the teams for supporting the show. As ever, thank you to everyone who's listening live on UK Health Radio. We really love the UK Health Radio platform. The show itself is one of many shows that's available on UK Health Radio. There are some incredible presenters doing incredible things. So please make sure that you check them out. Um, and thanks as ever to Johan and his team for producing the show with us. Much appreciated. If you are listening on any of the podcast channels, thanks for downloading it. If you're watching us on YouTube, thanks for watching us. Uh, we actually spent most of the time thinking about Spotify, but it turns out we've, we've just been looking at the numbers. And over the last three or four weeks, Apple Podcasts has gone absolutely bananas. So I'm not sure quite what's happened with their algorithm, but 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 our numbers from Apple have just gone way up which is fantastic. So anyway, thank you very much for everyone for listening. We wouldn't be here without you. Um, last week's show, for those of you that listened and for those of you who didn't, check it out, With was with Chris Bischoff, who's the managing director of a investment fund called General Catalyst. Um, his explanations around Babylon Health, the you know, the good and the bad, and something called Livongo, which was a very successful diabetes management platform that was bought by uh, who was it bought by? Bought by Teladoc for 18 billion, but then actually didn't really go that well necessarily. Were hugely insightful. Um, he was an early backer and a big backer of both. So if you have the opportunity, check out that show. This week we have another titan of the healthcare investment space on Jess McCready, who is principal at Octopus Ventures. Octopus Ventures. For those of you that don't know, I know we're a broad church, are one of the leading early stage and growth investors in health and healthcare technology in the UK and Europe. They also invest in other sectors, but they are certainly one of the leaders in health and healthcare and health tech. Um, they've backed a number of companies that people may have heard of, including Quit Genius, Big Health with their app Sleepio, which was the first app ever prescribed by the NHS, uh, which was for insomnia, Vera, Skin and Me, and tune so jess welcome to the show how are you hi thank you so much for having me very well thank you steve good so what uh we're broad church so let's just jump straight into what what is a principal investor and you know what does that involve you know a bit of background there might be really helpful 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I spend my, my day to day um, thinking about what are the enabling technologies and innovations that are going to transform the markets that I focus on. Um, as a venture capital investor, as you can imagine, we take a very long term view. So we're thinking about trends on a sort of 10 year horizon plus. Um, so I, as you rightly said, I spend most of my time um, within health tech, but also in B2B SaaS. Um, so my job is, is very simply to identify the technologies that we believe will transform those markets, um, build a relationship with those companies um, and look to support their growth, both through investment, but also through the, the package of support that we offer as a team. Um, then work with those companies, uh, management team and board level, um, and then manage our relationship with them all the way through growth um, and ideally through exit as well. And why do some of these companies, why is it so important in healthcare, particularly for uh, investment funds to support those innovators and innovative companies? Why is it particularly important in healthcare, do you think? Yeah, I mean, very simply, it's to improve outcomes for patients and also to reduce cost. Um, we've seen a, a huge amount of transition in the market, um, in part through COVID and, and what that's done to adoption, um, but also thinking through to some of our longer term healthcare trends. You know, 70% of our healthcare spend in the UK goes to long term chronic illness, um, of which, unfortunately, most of those do not have a therapeutic response or cure. Um, and so investing in health technology, and that could be both curative, it could also be um, to sort of reduce the impacts um, of symptoms and help individuals better cope uh, with long term chronic disease. Um, you know, health tech plays a, a hugely important role um, in, in that evolution and in that landscape that we have today. Um, and that goes for uh, managing problems in patients, both through healthcare providers, through insurance, uh, through pharma and also direct to consumer as well. And do you think do you subscribe to this theory that healthcare is hard? you know, in terms of building a business, starting a business, scaling a business? Is it from your experience of having been an investor for, for a number of years, is it like objectively any harder than any other space or, or is it just sort of horses for courses and every space is hard because starting businesses and being successful at starting a business is hard? Look, I think as a broader team, we invest across all main verticals within software-enabled technology. So fintech, consumer tech, B2B SaaS, health tech, deep tech and fintech. You know, each vertical has its own um, idiosyncratic challenges. <clears throat> I wouldn't say one is any harder than the other. It's just the, the individual challenges per vertical are, are different and take a very different skill set, both by the management team, but also, frankly, by the investor. Um, to understand those challenges and try and mitigate, you know, challenges around them. Um, so, you know, some of the dynamics that you have in health tech is the amount of data that's required um, to evidence that a technology is efficacious, but also safe, um, tends to be far higher than, for example, what you have in, in consumer tech, um, yeah. where challenges wouldn't apply. Um, there have been some very useful studies uh, done by Bessemer, which show it takes roughly three years longer than your average B2B SaaS platform to get to that you know, sort of holy grail of 100 million revenue number. Um, and that's due to the facts, as I said, having to prove out the data from that the technology works and also in, in many cases um, surpass regulatory clearance before that product is scaled in the open market. Um, yeah. Those challenges just take time. And, and I would agree with you. So just just so everyone's on the same page, the, the report that Jess was referencing was a, a report that was released, I think, earlier this year by Bessemer. Bessemer is a huge, very successful venture capital fund um, based out of the US, but they operate globally. And I, I, it was around the sort of 
pathways to exit, I guess, or, or sort of why the healthcare space was different and how it was different. I think as soon as it came out, probably every single health tech entrepreneur had downloaded that globally within about 15 minutes. It seemed to go around on LinkedIn like wildfire. It was sort of like the health tech equivalent of, you know, the dress where like you see it's yellow and you some people see it's green. It was like the health tech equivalent of that it just like went like wildfire. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think the um, for me, yeah, having worked across a number of different sectors previously, as well as now health technology, um, the regulatory landscape, clearly. But there are other regulated sectors like fintech, right? So that sort of is it slightly more regulated. There's the clinical safety aspect. There's the clinical research aspect. There's certainly a much, much higher um, sort of bar for acceptance or adoption. Um, and there's a much greater risk of sort of uh, lapsed adoption. So, for example, pathways change, regulation changes, attitudes, clinical evidence shifts, some new innovation comes out. I think within the consumer sector, there's sort of there seems to be a bit of an approach which is if consumers are buying it then it works and if they're not then it doesn't whereas that doesn't really apply to healthcare there's a lot more objectivity around the gating factors as to why something will 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 start will scale you know that's how I think about it I don't know what you think no, completely agree. And that, that look, that's not to say that health tech companies can't, um, you know, test out their product in, in different go to market strategies. I mean, we, we typically do see that and some are easier to access than others. Um, the bar is, is very high, with example, for by example, for with a provider or indeed um, with pharma. Um, but you might find, you know, less so the case if you're if you're going through a partnership model where, you know, you can rely on their their brand capability and reach more so. Um, so it, it really depends. But yes, overall, I would I would completely agree with you. Um, and we'd love to hear how you've approached that and tackled that challenge um, with PolkDoc. It's a, it, it's one. Of, so my, my background previously was in a was in a number of things, but but predominantly I spent a lot. I was one of the early employees at a very, very, very successful business um, within the event ticketing space, probably the most successful live entertainment business that's come out of the UK and Europe in the last 30 years. Um, and so I started there, started their commercial group when I was 25 and, and grew that to be extremely successful. And, and the learnings that I took from that to bring it into healthcare, some have come across and some haven't. And I think mm-hmm. the, the trying to find this middle ground between the very traditional approach, which is highly sequential, which is we do one thing then we do another, then we do another in a linear line versus the the non-regulated sector, which is you sort of, you try and move hyper fast as much as you can and, and you, you accept that some things will work. You look at what works, you iterate, you iterate, you iterate. Trying to find a middle ground there has been one of the, the major major areas I believe that I've added value to to the company, to the startup that we have, is trying to sort of weave those two things together. I think the biggest thing that we did from the beginning was focus absolutely with a laser focus on what the problem was that we were solving for patients and for systems and for clinicians and it took us a really long time to get that down Um, luckily when you develop a medical device you're somewhat obligated to go through that process anyway although many people don't but you should be going through that process anyway as part of your product development cycle Um, and, and really we we benefited from the fact that we were highly focused on the cardiometabolic pathway. So my one of my observations around the health technology space, healthcare space, 
uh, is that there's a lot of people that that are very excited about their technology that they've yeah. built, extremely excited about that, and they're less worried about finding out what the real problem is and understanding the scale of that problem and understanding how that problem is currently being managed, is currently being monetized, who is paying for that, who will pay for a solution, and then fitting your technology solution into that pathway at the right moment. And maybe you, you then maybe it means a complete redesign of that pathway, or maybe you just neatly slot into it and you save cost or make it more efficient. But what one of the things that I've consistently seen, particularly with 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 businesses that have highly technical founders and no and no commercial founders is that there's a fantastic and this is this is really prevalent in diagnostics as well i believe um it is sort of my box is better than your box my photo sensors are better than your photo sensors you know sort of trying to win the win on an engineering point and actually when you get down to it no one really cares about that you know, th there's an assumption that your technology is good. There's an assumption that it works. There's an assumption that it's accurate and so on. You're not going to win in that space unless you really solve a problem. And actually, it's that, it, it, you know, when you go through that process, um, and I think this is this is my theory. I haven't I haven't confirmed this with objective data, but when 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 you're when you operate in businesses, maybe outside of healthcare or outside of academia, it's accepted that nine times out of 10, you're going to be wrong. In your thesis but you tried it you learn you iterate you tried it you learn you iterate whereas the idea for a lot of individuals i've encountered in in academia or, or in highly technical areas the idea that they could be wrong is very difficult for them to understand and very difficult for them to to get their head around because this is their solution based on their research that they've done and so you're the problem for not understanding how great their solution is so and actually if you're going to really understand patient problems, payer problems, provider problems, clinician problems, you're going to have to eat a lot of humble pie and understand that actually what you've developed may not work very well. And actually, you may have to adapt and you may have to do different things. And so that's kind of the approach that we've taken at PocDoc, which was really focus on the problem, really focus on the pathway. We already knew <clears throat> we already knew the kind of, I guess, broad landing zone of where our technology would be. Mm. But we we then tried and we made you know we, we had loads and loads of interactions with clinicians and patients and providers and things like that that went really badly basically yeah. at the beginning and they were like well this won't work you know this won't work for this and sort of some tons of our theses went out but actually through that process you start to refine and I think it's and then then I'll, I'll let you talk which is the whole point of this podcast so apologies um is the <laughs> um, but you did ask so you know um the um is is this this openness to exploring different avenues in parallel versus a sequential linear approach i think is is something that's benefited us and you can still do it safely you can still do it with clinical oversight you can still do it within the rules and regs but this idea that you're going to look at different things try different things and then work at work that out but that you have this laser focus on actually this is the problem that we solve i mean yeah. one, one of the things just randomly on pockdoc that we realized was that just the ability to have an app that captures data digitally during a screening interaction, that in itself is a step forward. Before you even layer in the blood test and the, the quantitative and the heart risk assessment and all that on the integration in the record. So you only, you only really get that where you actually go and do the, do, do the boots on the ground thing. Um, anyway, sorry, uh, over to you. 
No, I, I completely agree with your your observations. Um, and you've touched on a really important point for us as an investment team, like that elasticity of mindset around solving for the outcome and underlying needs rather than obsessing on the enabling technologies is hugely important for us. Um, and it's something we acutely test as we're getting comfortable on a company or an opportunity. I think one of the common pitfalls that I've, I've noticed within teams that um, fall foul to that that dynamic is when the tech team and the the product team almost operate and become as one rather than two separate entities getting yeah. well within a company. Um, yeah. I would say structuring for success in that regard early on, whereby you have you know two different minds leading up those separate functions. Um, obviously, communication between the two is is absolutely paramount for success. Um, but we like to see you know the product team being externally facing, thinking about usability, adoption, underlying KPIs for measurement of the product, whereas the tech team are thinking about, you know, is this the right approach? How do we need to test it at scale? How do we scale it? Um, and how do we prove that it works? But those well, are what, Yeah, what, one of the things that I noticed was that having come from a more traditional tech background, you know, tech with a capital T, was that, um, and then moving into a sort of medical device type diagnostics type you know health technology field was that the definition of product and product development is very different on spec which is in in tech with a capital t product owners product development is really geared around customer success Mm. right really focused on that whereas in in traditional you know uh, health technology world and i'm not talking about regulation so if people want to start, I'm not I'm not saying you're operating outside of the regs, just the mindset is is hugely focused on hardware development, physical mm-hmm. development. It's it's not worrying a huge amount about what's going to happen with the customer and what the customer wants. And, and actually, that process of product development of physical product is actually extraordinarily cumbersome mm. at times. And, and so being sophisticated, which which was another thing that we are at Pockdog, being sophisticated about how you can move through that product development cycle can make a, a transformative difference to your route to market and your speed to market. Yeah, and I think like bringing it back to health tech as well, specifically, one of the like often challenges health tech companies have to go through is um, system change. You know, some companies are lucky enough that they can slot into an existing process and there's zero change required. That's like seldom the case. And companies that do have to affect system change really have to think very acutely about, you know, how will the underlying user, so most times a healthcare provider or clinician, how will the underlying like user and deliverer of this product like think, feel, you know, worry about their role changing? You know, they've they've grown up in a an industry where they've trained for a very long period of time, um, accepting a, a status quo of technology that's very different to what you're trying to introduce. Um, and some specific examples would be the likes of AI and radiology. You know, we've yeah. seen years um, clinicians worry about, you know, what the adoption of that AI will mean for their role. Um, actually, there's been um, some very recent research to suggest that the, the second look by radiologists is still more accurate than many of the AI solutions. Um, yeah. There's also conflicting data and particularly NICE, who work in partnership with the NHS, um, have, have done a very long study to, to show that there's many tools out there that are, um, you know, as accurate as, as the sort of the human second look and are, are now introducing uh, nine solutions into the NHS for that second look review. Oh, nice. Which which ones are going in? Do they do we know? Have um, they published them or is it just like, hey, we've we've selected nine? Yeah, they're all on NICE's website. Um, oh, so cool. All are fairly like well established, like tested and proven solutions, but we'll we'll start to see the impact of them trickle through um, over the course of this year and next, which is hugely impactful for the sector. Um, yeah. But the, particularly the the fear of, 
you know, how that will change the day to day of the radiologist has been a huge challenge in adoption um, for the last couple of years that we've been looking at the technologies. Um, so it's a great step forward. Do you, do you back anyone in that space? Does Octopus have anything in that space? Um, in AI for radiology um, so far, no, um, but definitely keeping a close watch um, over what the, the future future look of that space looks like. I think the um, we you know while we're on the subject of AI, we can kind of talk about ChatGPT in healthcare just before we go to our first break. What are your thoughts about it first? Before I obviously go off on my own little soapbox. <laughs> yeah, so I think like um, the broader field of generative AI in healthcare, I think you know there's a huge potential to save um, a lot of administrative hours for clinicians. Um, I'm in terms of applications today, here and now. Um, I think what is uh, safe and reliable is automation um, and use of generative AI in like sort of administrative processes. Um, I think uh, what I'm really excited about looking forward is use of generative AI and clinical applications um, to help support the clinician. Um, and there's you know many companies out there um, such as Druid, such as Click, um, that are building long-term data models for clinical application. Um, but starting today in automation, you know, of administrative processes, um, which I think in terms of, you know, patient safety and outcomes is absolutely the right approach. Um, but I get very excited when we think about the longer term applications once there's reliable, you know, LLMs built with, you know, useful clinical data. Um, so, yeah, those are my thoughts. I would agree. Um, I would agree. I think that that anything involved automation, administration, efficiency, is a complete no-brainer and probably on the safe end of the spectrum i think that there's 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 a huge amount of work for regulators both but at a um i guess medical device level so as well as at a nice local health authority level they need to really i my, my biggest concern is that either they don't catch up won't want to catch up can't catch up and they stifle the innovation or <clears throat> that they don't catch up can't catch up and the thing just goes out anyway and there's a huge risk. So in theory, if you're a medical device, whether you're AI or software as a medical device or hardware, you have to have full traceability and auditability on every component in your device, which somewhat runs against some of the foundations of some of these generative AI models. And so I think it's a hugely valuable area and has got the opportunity to completely transform any sector, not, not just healthcare, any sector pretty much, but the the traceability and the regulatory oversight is going to be absolutely critical. So I think they're either going to be able to nail it to be able to foster that positively or they're going to fluff it. And we'll either have, you know, the Wild West and things will be out there and there'll be problems or there just won't be anything because no one can get anything through, mm. which will then which will then like have a downstream impact on investment and ability to raise and maybe I, I would imagine the fda will probably be ahead of the curve on this because they gen generally seem to be and i suspect probably the you know the there's significantly more investment going into this stuff in the us obviously so i i i suspect they'll get it right so i don't know i think the the eu's generally always been a little bit you know bearish on some of this stuff traditionally so we'll just have to see that's my take on it yeah, and I think you raise an important point in that the only way we'll have future applications within a clinical field is if we start today like fostering and building those data assets that can be used for future benefit and gain. Um, so there's there's definitely still investment opportunity, but to be clear, I think we need to spend a lot of time thinking about what's the right infrastructure, what's the right regulation, and how do we build for success for the long term, you know, rather yeah. than 
about what are the, the day one applications today within the clinical field. Um, but we, we do have to start now. Otherwise, as you say, we will be significantly behind the rest of the world. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Well, so we're, 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 we have to go for our first commercial break now. We'll be back in two minutes with Jess McCready, Principal Investor at Octopus Investment, Octopus Investment Fund. We'll be right back. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with rosy, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. Once upon a time, human slavery was just a fact of life. Right now, animal abuse is often considered normal. In time, it won't be. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. The station that makes you feel good. Hello, welcome back to the second part of this week's um, Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Jess McCready, Principal Investments, Principal Investor at Octopus Ventures. I'm having problems with my words today. So before the break, we were talking about uh, well, a whole bunch of things, including the the application of generative AI in healthcare. Um, let's change it up a little bit now, and let's talk a little bit about some of the investments that you've made that we talked about previously before the show that you wanted to sort of highlight. So I know that you've done some stuff in digital therapeutics, like Sleepio, which is Big Health, Quit Genius. Um, you know, and I think we've also talked about this. I definitely talked about it last week with Chris from General Catalyst, and we also talked about it in our pre-show briefing, which is this idea of there's an investment thesis as to why you invest in any particular sector or any particular uh, business and, and understanding how that thesis gets built. But then there's also this sort of unknown around it's the right thesis, but was it executed right? You know, you know, we've seen examples around that. Babylon's a good one. But, you know, let's let's start there. How how do you want to sort of begin this discussion? Yeah. So, look, we are um, hypothesis driven, but also very reactive as well um, as to, you know, sort of what the, the shorter term or um, or sort of evolution, evolving technologies we see in the market within any given year. Um, so we do spend a lot of time as a team, you know, writing and sharing thought leadership um, on the, the sort of the higher level hypotheses we're excited by. Um, but as an investment team, if that's the only way you operate, you, you will inevitably miss technologies um, because you can't foresee every every technology or company that that you know comes up to raise every single year. So we act we act in both ways as a team. Um, and then in terms of like what are the, the long term trends that we're excited by. So as a team, we invest in software enabled technologies. Um, we do also and have done um, invest in companies that have hardware as part of their, their stack as well. 
um, and we've been very successful in doing so. Um, whereas a lot of um, technology investors, but specifically health investors, um, often tend to shy away from hardware. Um, I think within health tech, which you often don't have in other verticals, is, is hardware is often in, like absolutely necessary for. Like, <laughs> yeah, at, at some at some point you have to interact with the patient, and so you know, yeah. It's um, yeah, very helpful. Um, and I've had some personal success in that space as well. So I think you should build a team acknowledging that that, that will often be part of the, the required approach to the, the underlying patient. Um, and yeah, some of the companies we've backed. So we think about very long term, large addressable market trends. Um, Fertility is one example. So Overture, our portfolio company, um, who are building solutions to automate um, fertility and fertility services. So IVF and egg freezing. Um, which has some really quite uh, catastrophic high-level stats insofar as a cost of uh, the cost of a single IVF cycle um, can be upwards of ten thousand dollars. Um, success rate of any given cycle is, is highly volatile depending on um, the underlying fertility clinic that you're engaging with, but roughly around twenty percent. So what that means is on average, each couple will have to go through five cycles before they get a positive outcome, um, which, you know, in the UK, we're lucky enough to have a, a reimbursed scheme for two cycles. But at the moment, there's this fairly long wait list. And obviously, during that time of waiting, um, the couple's fertility often decreases. Yeah. Also, I'm not sure quite when that kicks in either. I think you have to do something where you have to wait for a certain number of years. Before, and then I'm not sure quite now whether the waiting list that you're on only starts when you've done the waiting for a number of years i'm not quite sure whether it runs concurrently but it could that could be a big problem for a lot of people absolutely and there's also huge regional variations as well um so i think what we would we thought quite deeply around how do you um how do you solve the underlying bottlenecks um and there's some fantastic companies within fertility within fertility tech solving the connection barrier so how do you um, better access the appropriate point of care at the right time. Um, and we've seen some amazing marketplaces um, and tech ecosystem platforms scale up to solve that. Um, when we took a deep dive into the space, we felt actually one of the, the major barriers is the volatility of outcomes, you know, depending on what fertility clinic you access, as well as the global shortage of embryologists. Um, and when we made the investment into to Overture, they were, um, you know, one of the only at the time and still today, um, one of the most successful from a data set perspective, um, solving that exact challenge. And um, how do they how do they solve it? How have they how what, what's their sort of secret source? Well, you're the publicly publicly available secret source, not the secret secret source. <laughs> yeah, so the, the company are, are still in R&D phase. Um, they'll be working towards commercial launch um, next year. Um, and what they've done so far is they've proven um, their ability to automate some of the most technically challenging workflows um, within the IVF uh, cycle. Um, so they've started with um, oocyte vitrification, um, which is uh, crowd freezing of the underlying oocyte, which is the female egg. Um, and they've, they've now built a fantastic product um, in that space, um, which is, as I said, will we'll go through commercial launch next year. Um, they've also built an automated ICSI, which is a, an automated robot, um, which does the, the insemination of the oocyte using the sperm sample. Okay. And they've also built a metabolomic solution, um, which tests the underlying health of, of the oocyte. And what, uh, are the, were those some of the key failure points, if you like, or are those some of the key failure points in this or, or sort of determinants of the success rate of any given cycle? Yeah, absolutely. So they've started on where we see the, the where we see the highest volatility from a, an outcomes perspective, um, and then the 
the plan over the next couple of years, once commercially launched, will be to to launch that as a platform um, that can be a full stack solution um, for fertility clinics to rely on, um, which we firmly believe will will unblock um, some of the the major challenges in that space, being access to embryologists, um, you know, who, who have enough experience, which is often more than ten years um, in practice before um, they can manage this type of cycle. Um, and also give more reliability on outcomes to the underlying patients who are trying to access this type of this type of service. So they want to almost be like the sort of the infrastructure, if you like, behind the front end of the fertility clinics. Absolutely. That's that makes a lot of sense. That's super interesting. Yeah, so that's a very long term theme and we've seen fertility uh, globally drop off and we've also seen couples typically, especially in the Western world, um, look to have families later on in life, you know, prioritising career and other and other um, parts of life ahead of having a family. Um, so there's a, been a huge amount of research done actually on the reasons for declining female fertility. Um, but there's also been a decline in, in male fertility. Um, but so far, um, not as many research studies or at least conclusive. They, you, you know, this like because I've, I've read these headlines as well. And I haven't I'm completely honest. I haven't looked into the articles. And I haven't read any of the data. So take that as as read. Um, but when they def- when they say fertility is declining, do they mean number of children per person or do they actually mean on any given, you know, I don't know what the, the term would be. Actually, on an almost like for like basis, people are unable to have as many children or, or are, are not being as successful at getting pregnant or having children as they were previously. So the average number of um, children per family in the Western world has declined, um, as you can imagine, but also the underlying fertility of uh, both females. Everyone has also dropped um, and as I said like causation has been proven within females or at least there's, there's indications as to why that is um, one of the major ones being waiting until later life um, the female fertility sort of peaks at age um, sort of peaks at age 27 and then starts to go into unfortunately terminal decline thereafter um, and it varies person to person um, but that's sort of the, the average model um, right and the male side, um, I forget the drop off point, but I think it was about 19 something, it was the 1950s or so, um, male sperm virality has dropped off in the order of 50% since then um, from the, the wow. test that um, was in the paper I read. Do they, um, do they think that's like environmental, environmental, societal? Yeah, so at the moment, it's all hypotheses. There's no um, concrete conclusions um, as to why that is. But yeah, sort of exposure to plastics, um, exposure to um, harmful environmental gases are sort of some of the main hypotheses, but but so far. Like, I, 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 are they, is there a connection between like overall health and sperm motility? Like, for example, people are unhealthier than they were in the 1950s, like on a kind of cardio metabolic basis. I don't know if that's got a connection or not really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some fantastic um, health tech companies within that space, such as Mojo, um, who often who offer um, you know point of care diagnostics for sperm virality. Um, and if you were to have one of those tests done, like some of the the most often recommendations are, are linked to you know diet, lifestyle, and exercise. Um, so yes, absolutely. There's a there's a very clear link between overall health um, and sperm virality. Right. Yeah. As, and yeah, it's funny how a lot of this stuff basically just comes back to the same things. Diet, lifestyle, you know, living more healthily. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned at the, the start of the, the hour, um, you know, lifestyle change as a as a sort of go to market approach and also an investment approach is, is very challenging. Um, Hugely challenging. You're very reliant on attitudes, um, you know, sort of volatility of those attitudes um, and doing that over the long term um, for many lifestyle linked diseases um, is, is proven quite challenging. Um, yeah. which I within the likes of weight loss, um, some of the new categories of drugs that we've seen come to market um, in the last couple of years is really exciting. But um, though, do, you, do you not think that like those there are so many businesses that basically got saved? you know like fairly generic digital weight loss that just got rescued because of i mean literally got pulled out of the fire because now they can basically prescribe or put people on the pathway to you know we go v semaglutide yeah i mean it's there's various stats out there but it's roughly 15 percent of americans um have already used um a glp1 which is quite phenomenal um yeah it's insane adoption um outside of the us i mean it's a, a huge um you know only just tapped opportunity um and i think that weight loss is, is challenging um so i think to do that over the long term only relying on behavior change um you know we do see a lot of unfortunately patients relapse into to old habits um so yes i think now that they do have prescribing capabilities has has been hugely helpful to their, their long-term success um but i'm a firm believer in you know both working together is it should result in a better outcome you know they just rely well, on it yeah i mean there's data there's data that suggests well very strongly suggests perhaps even you could go so far as to like empirically states that if you are on a glp1 or a semaglutide and you don't undergo any kind of behavior change or weight loss treatment psychological treatment or however sort of clinical treatment around your attitude to diet and exercise that it all just goes back on after you stop the treatment yeah yeah, absolutely. But no, it's been a it's been a really exciting evolution for for the space. Yeah, I think so. What we, what we've found so far with with PocDoc of all of the people that we've tested so far or have been screened using PocDoc, whether that's in the NHS or pharmacies or workplaces or any other places that we're that we're rolling out with, we found over thirty percent of people because we 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 capture BMI at the same time as all of the other cardiometabolic markers. So we do sort of the equivalent of the NHS health check in eight minutes anywhere and um 30 percent of people that we've tested had a bmi that would have meant that they well they would be able to get um semaglutide prescribed it's amazing Very yeah just and just finding these people and they're not even on anybody's radar so one of the challenges that we are now are now working on is how do we move people through whether it's a you know non-pharmaceutical pharmaceutical whatever it is some combined solution so that we can do the entire pathway so not just for weight loss but also for lipid lowering therapies and we've got hba1c coming out which then opens up type 2 diabetes and things like that but it's it's the ability to to, to digitize the entire pathway and find people that should be on that but the scale of the issue if you just look at bmi is a massive massive problem everywhere i would suspect in the european us probably all over the world yeah, I mean, like obesity is unfortunately a risk factor for most long term other long term chronic illnesses that we, we tend to suffer with in the Western world. So it's it's hugely important that we, we get this right um, and like enabling technology that's been significantly invested in over the years um, is the likes of, you know, CBT. Um, but we're yeah. also um, uh, quite significant development within others like neuromodulation, um, which we're really excited by within the field of weight loss, um, but also various other applications as well. 
um well let's get into neuromodulation after our next break because that sounds extremely that that sounds great um so we are going to have a final commercial break now jess mccready principal investor from octopus ventures we will be right back uk health radio the station that makes you feel good Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. We've been doing this for over 40 years. Every year, more and more people are living satisfying lives completely cruelty-free. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest this week, Jess McCready, who is principal investor at Octopus Ventures, one of the leading early stage and growth investors in health and healthcare technologies in the UK and Europe. So, Jess, just before the break, we were talking about weight loss and enabling software and you mentioned something which you thought was very exciting which is called neuromodulation which i've not actually speci- i mean i understand what the two words mean and i can sort of you know extrapolate where we're going but it's not a field that i'm necessarily familiar with so what is that and why do you think that's so exciting yeah i think um we've seen neuromodulation been applied in a number of verticals um so both within cardiac health uh, mental health and also weight loss um, to, to name just a few, um, many of the solutions that we've seen, um, so this is uh, using electrical signals um, to go through uh, the brain to stimulate um, an, a, a physical response within the body. Um, many of the approaches we've seen have been um, invasive, um, so going under the dermal layer um, so that they can access um, often the vagus nerve, but other, other parts of the anatomy. Um, that has its challenges insofar as it has uh, quite an expensive um, and, and long regulatory process. Um, yeah, if you're going down the implantable route, get ready. You, you better be well funded because that's going to take a while. Yeah. Um, and we've also seen some um, really exciting companies that have developed technology that is non-invasive. Um, so to call one out in the atrial fibrillation and heart failure space um, is a business called Parasim. Um, and their sort of form factor is such that they just attach to the earlobe um, and through that they're able to access the vagus nerve um, and they're still in R&D phase but have been able to, to evidence uh, clinical data sets within atrial fibrillation and heart failure, uh, which is very exciting. Mm. What do you mean they, they reduce it or they just measure it? Uh, no, redu- reduction of the symptoms. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And Already a number of companies within that space in commercial application within, for example, mental health and, and weight loss. Yeah, there's quite a lot in. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a few in that space. But that sounds incredible. Parrot. Did you say Parasim? Parasim. Yeah. 
But when you think about the the application from a clinical perspective with that type of technology, I mean, heart failure and heart disease is the the biggest killer uh, globally. Um, and when you can approach uh, the the patient through a non invasive form factor, um, it's yeah, a really really exciting really exciting opportunity. I I completely agree. Um, neuromodulation, everyone, it's a new one for the show. So uh, I know that we so we've got we've got a little bit of time left in the show, and I know that um, we didn't even touch on your background. And I think that actually, luckily, if that makes sense, it's good to touch on it now because it leads into the sort of I think a wider discussion around your view and your feeling around the the diversity within um, investment and venture capital and things like that. So why don't you give us a quick, you know, a bit of an overview about your journey to where you are, principal investor, and, you know, what your view is generally around this issue of diversity within the investment space? Because I know it's been something that's been talked about quite rightly for a number of years now. And yeah, just thought it'd be an interesting topic to sort of finish the show up on. Yeah, absolutely. So my background, um, I left university, wanted to go into banking and finance. I was fascinated um, by like finance and also what it took to scale a successful company. Um, so at the time, you know, going into investment banking felt like the most obvious route for me. Um, and I guess my, my career as I look at, look at it is probably split into three parts so far. Um, started off in banking um, and through that understood how to structure companies at scale from a capital perspective and also get to exit. Um, my sector specialism was actually not in healthcare, it was in infrastructure and energy. Um, but my main takeaway from that was I absolutely loved working with companies that were producing energy and also infrastructure that was sustainable and often renewable. Um, it was probably less attached to the, um, the finite energy work that I did in oil and gas. Um, which actually was a, a good signal to me in that I, I really I love working in a sector where you can create positive social and system change um, right. constant throughout my career. Um, the middle part of my career was spent a large corporate called Legal in General. Um, so one of the UK's or the UK's biggest pension manager and term insurer. Um, and they are a very large um, financial services organisation. And my role there was actually I was investing the principal balance sheets. Um, where we had, I guess, an impact focus insofar as we were trying to do good um, for broader society and obviously return, um, you know, a commercial return for the capital we're investing. Um, so it was a very large uh, pot of capital that we were deploying. Um, and I sort of played a number of roles in the strategy during my time there, initially in infrastructure, um, then investing into venture capital. And before I'd left, I'd set up a, a health tech uh, VC strategy where we're investing in health technology strategically. Um, and the strategic motivation there was, you know, LNG's balance sheet is probably the most exposed to health and life risk. Um, yeah, because it's an insurance company, right? Exactly. Um, so my, my strategy was to invest in health tech that was preventative and predictive in nature, um, mm -hmm. where possible, help those companies scale up through commercial, you know, partnerships with the broader organisation. Um, so I guess that then taught me how to how to build within a large corporate um, and how how specifically to partner with large organisations when you're you know a very early stage entrant into the space. And um, like, what what was it that drew you? Because you you committed to the financial services sector or the financial pathway pretty early on, by the sounds of it. So what 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 was there a moment or an experience that you had in your formative years where you you realised that that was the pathway, or did, was it more organic than that? Um, I think it was probably. <clears throat> quite organic in the sense that like I've always enjoyed maths like 
loved thinking about like how to scale, like how to like how the idiosyncrasies of a particular sector, like what that looks like in terms of a company P and L. Um, and that like that just it sounds quite sad, but that that, that really. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, like what, there's that famous story about Warren Buffett, if you've ever read the book Snowball, where like, you know, at the age of 14, he'd memorized all of the balance sheets of the S&P 500. And like, we, you know, when he went to college, when he was like 16, he like his party trick at the Pratt house was to like that people named a company and he would like give the whole thing. So was it a bit like that? <laughs> I'd love to say I could do that, but definitely. <laughs> Um, but you know, similar. Like I like maths is is very factual. It's often very binary, and I, that appeals to me. But I have to say, like the evolution that I've gone through in my career is actually I'm I'd say equal parts left brain as I am right brain. And what technology gives me is like quite a creative solution to problem solving. Um, so I love like I love doing both in my day to day. So I love like the very like factual use of numbers, like financials, modeling, like that appeals to me in terms of, you know, my sort of left brain thinking. Yeah. And then right brain, like I love thinking about, okay, this is, you know, we're seeing life expectancy, you know, taking the example of being sat within legal in general, life expectancy from around 2018 started to flatten out in the UK. Um, and it's, you know, because uh, as to our point at the start of the call, like a lot of our healthcare costs are on long term, you know, non yeah. chronic disease um, and to enable that uh, sort of longevity curve to continue to rise. We need to see more investment and more scalability within preventative forms of healthcare. Um, so that that like problem solving and thinking for me was, you know, what can we invest in and help scale to help affect that system change? Um, and investing in technologies and, and working with companies um, at the sort of the early stage innovator part of their life cycle, um, you know, really appeals to me in terms of working creatively and problem solving. Um, so the blend of the two is is really important uh, to me. Um, yeah. Third part of my career has been, you know, investing in venture capital within VC funds. So working at Octopus Ventures um, and helping helping me to to work with my my companies and what it looks like to build from the ground up. Um, which has just been a very different part of the risk cycle, but an enjoyable one um, from where I've worked before. But I think if you think about the steps in my career, I've sort of worked at the very latest stage and then gone all the way down to the very early stage. And I think knowing what it could look like at scale um, has been really helpful to me in my career and helping me to work with the companies that I work with um, to build for success. Makes sense. And so what's your what's your opinion currently on the sort of I hate. I mean, diversity is a pretty catch-all word, but I don't have a better one for it. So, what's your view on that sort of issue within what you experience and have experienced currently? Yeah. So, I think I've only ever worked um, in companies/sectors where diversity is a topic for discussion and improvement. Um, so, investment banking also has its its own challenges um, within this space. Um, and I'm lucky insofar as all the companies I've worked for, this has been at the forefront of their thinking to, you know, we need to solve this. We need to have a better ratio um, between males and females. Um, when we think about diversity, we think about it in all manners of diversity. So ethnicity, educational, social status, um, gender is often one uh, that started on um, because the, you know, the, the split is very clear societally. Um, and, you know, in order to get to the um, to a more healthy balance, um, you know, many companies have introduced things like, um, you know, quotas or indeed boards have, um, but that can also have negative outcomes. Um, so as a team, you know, we are lucky enough to be broadly 50-50 as an investment team. Um, and we've been quite public in what our messaging to the market is. 
Um, so by 2025, we want 30% of all new founder pitches uh, to our investment team um, to be either led or co-led by a female. Um, and how are you, how are you going to inv- are you going to enforce that on a case by case basis, basically? So it, we've been public about it, which enforces- right, which is a, it's a first step. <laughs> so it's a first step. That's obviously an input, not an outcome. But in order to affect change, you know, there's there's an evolution that has to take place, and and we feel this is the most appropriate place to start. Um, and then by 2027, that number will increase to 50 percent. Um, so the hope and the desire is that our portfolio, which is now roughly 25 percent um, female or female co-led companies, then becomes more like 50 percent. Um, right. by Yeah. I mean, we, you know, back in the early days of when we were doing things, my co-founder, who's who's a woman, she's also my wife. She um, she went was was on one of these sort of. Uh, what was it called sort of an angel angel network for women so female angel network trying to sort of invest in early stage businesses that had a a founder or co-founder that was that was a that was a woman and um at the at the pitch event she was the only woman pitching there was like six companies pitching and all the male founders pitched and the the female co-founder just sat there quietly i was i was like i was appalled it was ridiculous i'm like what's the i don't understand (laughs) <laughs> what, 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 why wouldn't you like surely that's slightly counterintuitive right I don't know that's just my thought yeah and you do like I mentioned earlier we invest in very different uh, sorry about a broad number of verticals um, you do see variances between verticals um, but actually within healthcare you know the the workforce within healthcare is actually more weighted towards females so you would expect you know if the founders are coming from a clinical background that you see more of a, a blend or a bias towards yeah. females, um, within health tech um, but sadly, you know, not not the case. There is, in our view, very much, um, you know, sort of a, a top of the funnel supply challenge. And we, we do need to work with females and female yeah. teams um, on entrepreneurship. And I, I, think, I think there's also like, I mean, I could probably talk about this forever. My, I know my, my, my wife could, could do like 10 shows on this. It's a real personal bugbear for her. But there was an, there's another issue, which is around the the expectation of founders. In, in general mm-hmm. um so w- one of the pieces of feedback that my wife also had from uh, from another vc that was an early stage vc was that um th- it was a red flag for them that she wanted to spend a day a week looking after our children and do a blended role it's like well and, and and that was a female vc that said that to her goodness and you're like well and that's a uk-based vc by the way so i will not name names but th- i think that there's a lot of like uh, th- th- there's sort of this this idea that a founder has to work 100 hour weeks or whatever it happens to be and, and ultimately that's not conducive to many people's lives and so I don't know I don't know what your thoughts are about that no I think you know as an industry we're, we're going through a, a big system change I think the perception of a, a tech entrepreneur um, in the early 2000s was you know a white Caucasian male probably went to an Ivy, Ivy League US school um, got three hours sleep underneath his desk. So yeah. Wake up. <clears throat> yeah. And that's not conducive to, you know, most types of individuals, um, but not least, you know, people that, that have a family to look after. Um, so, no, that is definitely not our view. And we, we actively seek diversity, um, not just in the founding team, but the broader management team of our companies. Um, and the stats, like, speak for themselves. Um, there was a, this is actually more from a VC fund perspective, Um, than a a VC stage company perspective but there was a really interesting report um, which was published a couple of months ago by European Women in VC 
Um, so they produce a, a report every year um, on the on the landscape. Um, and this latest report, I don't know if you saw it, but they've um, summarised that management teams mostly comprised of women outperform men only teams um, by an order of 9.3%. Um, and that's from a, a VC fund perspective. I'm not um, surprised. I'm really not surprised. And I'm not surprised necessarily because it's gender necessarily. It's just that men and women approach problems differently in general. I'm being generalized. And they they think about things very differently, in my experience, having done this for a while. And actually, you end up with a much better outcome if you have a plurality of opinion, as opposed to just a very narrow selection of opinion. And, you know, I, I would completely I completely agree anecdotally with that data. Yeah, I think like the portfolio companies that we have that come to like more constructive, more informed, like better strategic decisions are those that have a diverse team. Um, so I think a negative outcome of that report would be to say that all venture capitalists should be VCs. I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> it should be females. I'm not saying that's the case. No. But, um, but definitely like more more diversity is better and getting to you know better constructed, well informed debates and views. Makes sense. Well, on that note, Jess, we've come to the end of the show. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, much appreciated. Jess McCready, Principal Investor of Octopus Ventures. And thanks to everyone for listening. Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.